Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Culture, the inescapable facet of humanity that saturates, shapes, and sways. What does culture tell us is important? What does it tell us to value? Do the themes of today align with what the gospel says is enduring and meaningful? The messages of culture can be so loud, so pervasive, and so crushing, yet so quietly stealthy at getting into our souls. Just do it. Have it your way. Obey your thirst. The cries of culture put us at the center of our world. Just go after it. But instead of chasing after the counterfeits that will slowly crush us, we are asked to come. Come to Him who can satisfy our deepest longings. Come to Him who will give us rest for our weary souls. Come to Him who is crushed for us. Instead of taking what culture says is true, we need to become students of truth by reading what the world says and comparing it to what the Word says by hearing the world's news and recognizing it doesn't compare to the good news, by seeing that the world offers empty promises that lead to despair and looking to the King who makes us His heirs. Well, welcome again. Uh, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll watch a video, and then Rick will come up to preach the word. So join me uh, as we pray. Father God, we thank you um, just so much that you are good, uh, that you are great, that you uh, created this world and you created us and you created each and every one of us uh, with intentionality, um, with a purpose and plan for our lives. God, you you know each and every one of us, the depths of our being, and you approve of us. You, you love us, you accept us. Um, God, we thank you that you've shown us how much you love us by sending your own, only son uh, to take our place on the cross, to die the death we deserve after the living, after living the life that we should live. Um, but Jesus, you rose from the grave, you conquered sin and death, and now you offer to us uh, free, uh, eternal life to all of those who would come uh, and believe in you, believe on your name. So God, give us faith. Give us faith to believe um, not just once, um, but every single day of our lives. Help us to believe, uh, Jesus, that you are Lord, now that you are Savior, and that Everything we are, every, everything that we do flows out of that truth and that identity. God, I pray that as Rick preaches the word this morning, that as he, as he uh, shows us what you have to say, what your word has to say about what it means to be a man, um, God, that you would speak to all of our hearts. Um, man, woman, uh, child, adult, whoever uh, is here this morning, God, I pray that the gospel is loud and clear and that it changes and affects lives. God, we pray for unity. You desire your church to be unified. We thank you for the unity that GCC has experienced, and God, we pray that it would continue. Uh, we pray that we would come together as a family centered on the gospel, centered on what you've done for us and who we are in you, um, that we would not come together uh, on any other grounds, and then therefore that we wouldn't let any other grounds separate us, God. So unify us as a church. Uh, help us to grow uh, in our, our knowledge and understanding of your love for us, how great it is, um, and how much you've shown us it uh, in the gospel. Pray now that you would open up our hearts to believe, our eyes to see, 
our ears to see, our minds to understand what you have for us this morning from your word. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, but go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis. I know it went out in the email to be in 1 Samuel 16. We're going to get there, but open to Genesis chapter 2. So right at the beginning of your Bible, we're going to start there this morning. Genesis chapter 2. Today we're going to be looking at biblical manhood. So we've been looking at these catchphrases and slogan that society tells us. Today we're looking at the one by Gillette, which is the best a man can get. Okay? We've looked at various ones. Uh, we're even going to look at uh, what Gillette tells us uh, how to become a best uh, a man can be. But what we're going to do today is something that we haven't done in a while, is, is we are going to look at 1 Samuel uh, 16. What we're going to do is look at biblical theology. And so what biblical theology is, is it's tracing themes to the entire Bible. And so uh, we can always go and see what the world says, but what we want to do is, is see what God's word says from beginning to end and what God's word says, not just in a, in a, in a verse somewhere or a couple of verses that we've pulled out. We want to see what God's word says to biblical manhood from beginning to end. And so what we're going to do is, is, is look at that. So we're going to take a tour through our Bibles today, and, and we're going to look at the biblical theology of biblical manhood. And so first I would ask this, ladies, I know it's going to be addressed to men today, but please be patient and gracious with us today. Next week, we're going to be looking at uh, maybe she's born with it, maybe it's Maybelline. So your time is coming. So if your husband's not here today, take lots of notes for him. I know there's a group of ladies maybe over here and their husbands aren't here today. You can make the sermon whatever you want and give it to your husbands later. So, uh, so, but also, please don't tune out because there's this important aspect. For every woman in the room, for every woman that calls GCC your home and family, but for every woman who is in Christ, we, have, we all have a biblical responsibility to know what we are to hold men accountable to and hold men accountable for. And so I think it's important for us to listen, not just as wives, but also for the people in the room that, that one day want to be married, but also just to know what we're supposed to hold men accountable to. And so with that, we're going to be in Genesis. So a few things. It's been one heck of a week. I'll say that from the start, okay? So let me unpack it a little bit for you guys. So uh, we're, 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 we are in a process uh, uh, with a foster son. So we had a difficult meeting this week. I have to leave that vague on purpose uh, with DHS. So prayers for our family with that. And then uh, I was in the ER on Thursday. I'm good, good to go now, okay? Friday, we went to dinner with our friends, Steve and Billy Ann, who are here today, at Beppe and Johnny's. There, there we were uh, having dinner, and, uh, and I started to choke, okay? There's a, there's a lot of ways I'd, I'd be down to go out in life, but not, not like a good steak, for one, maybe preaching from the pulpit, but not on balsamic vinaigrette. Not bread, just balsamic vinaigrette. I had some allergic reaction to it, and my wife was trying to diagnose me and ask questions, and I literally couldn't breathe, just started sweating. I thought I was, I thought I was dead. So I'm like, this is not how I want to go. And so that was that. And then yesterday I had a competition and then here today. So I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be preaching the word today. It, here, here's what I would say. There is a difference between just stating God is good and then through your life realizing through difficulties and hard times. Those are sometimes the most comforting words for me is to know those truths, that God is truly good. We'll never do anything for his children that isn't for their own best interest and for our own good for his own glory. So with that, we're going to be looking at biblical manhood today. So I'm excited about this. I'm passionate about this. I think there's a lot of views and perspectives about what it looks like to be a biblical man. I don't think it's an accident that Joe Rogan has one of the greatest followings of podcasts. I don't think it's an accident that pe people are looking and following uh, men like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and some of these guys. What we want to know and what we want to understand is what does God's word say about biblical manhood? 
What does his word say about that? How does it unpack it? How does it address it? What are men called to do? Ultimately, who are men called to be? And so with that, our main point today is going to be soak it up. Soak it up. There's three words that I heard growing up more than any other words. The, the phrase that I heard the most, I was bit by venomous snake when I was 10, and my dad told me three words, suck it up. I had my nose shattered at one point in my life, and I was told the, the, the phrase, suck it up. Broken hands, suck it up. I, I grew up with a dad who was quite literally, like physically a monster, six foot five, 300 pounds, but also raised me to be a boy that was supposed to never cry. The problem was he was raising a very sensitive boy who cried a lot. And so I understood this is what a man's supposed to be. However, my dad's upbringing of trying to train me to be a man actually didn't have the impact on me that he thought it was going to have on me. And so uh, spent my life dealing with and trying to cover up insecurities in every sort of way, including by the time I was 23, engaging in mixed martial arts and spending a decade doing that. And so I can tell you from one standing up here that I don't have biblical manhood mastered, but I do know this. I do know that the, the hazards and I do know the fall of trying to adopt something on biblical manhood that's not Christ-centered and that doesn't flow from God's grace. And so I do want to say this to the fathers in the room first. Maybe you had a great dad, a dad who taught you what it is to be a biblical man, but maybe you didn't. I would say it's not too late. We can turn that around, and ultimately it's done by God's grace. So I, I pray the word shapes that this morning. What we're going to trace and what we're going to see starting in Genesis and working our way through is this. We're going to see a tree at the beginning, middle, and end of our Bibles. So there's going to be a tree. There's always going to be the same person connected to that tree, which is Jesus Christ. In the garden, on the cross, and at the end with the tree again. So there's always going to be a tree in the beginning, middle, and end, and there's going to be the same person connected to the tree, Jesus Christ. And then we're going to look in between the beginning, middle, and end, and we're going to see what Samuel has to say, and then between that, we're going to see what Paul has to say, okay? So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at this. God's mode of operation is grace. So first, we need to soak up grace. Second point we're going to be looking at when it comes to soaking up is soak up what Christ gives us. Not what we accomplish, not what we make of ourselves, but soak up what Christ gives us. And then last, we need to soak up the life that Christ has called us to, okay? So we're going to soak up grace, soak up what Christ gives us, and soak up the, the life that Christ calls us to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you that there are men in this room that desire God to grow, to grow in grace, to grow in knowledge, to grow in humility, to grow in love, but to grow in a greater knowledge of who you are and what you've done and accomplished through and in your son alone. God, I know there are women in this room that have been impacted by men for the positive and the negative. And so I pray you would soften their hearts to hear and receive ultimately that we have one picture in 66 books of our Bible of the true and perfect man, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you've come to heal, redeem, and renew and restore manhood. Let us take our cues from you, the creator of man. Shape us this morning through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 2. Here's where we're going to start as we make our way through. Genesis 2, verse 16. You don't have to turn everywhere I turn today. You can even write these down if you want to go back and look them later because we're going to be cruising through quite a bit. So Genesis 2, <clears throat> 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, 
you shall surely die. So what's happening here is that God creates man and woman. And then God gives them one simple command. Don't eat of this certain tree in the garden. So that's the command that God gave. We need to understand that there are other views of creation that were going around at the, in, the Mes, in the Mesopotamian culture in world. One of them is called the Enuma Elish, and the other one is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Here's the massive difference between the message of Christianity's creation account and theirs, is their gods were creating chaos, and our gods were, uh, our god, one, triune, was taking chaos away in creation and, and, and actually bringing order to a world. But here's the bigger difference. Their gods were creating humans to use and abuse humans to gain something from them. And humans were doing this to their gods as well. Our God creates with one sole purpose. First, he creates out of grace. He doesn't need something from humanity. God creates humanity for this purpose, purpose relationship. God creates humanity because God desires to have a personal, intimate relationship with mankind. Not because he needs this, not to gain something from mankind, but because he wants to be with mankind. And then to, together in this creation process, you see them naming animals together. You see them enjoying one another. And you see man enjoying ultimately the greatest gift that God gives, which is himself. But then you see God give this command, don't eat of this certain tree. And then we fast forward in Christianity uh, just a chapter ahead to what we call the fall of mankind. And we believe it's when sin entered the, the picture. And so if you turn over another chapter, you'll get to Genesis 3. And what you actually see is the woman looks at the tree and says, boy, it looks good. I think I'll have some of that. And so she takes some. So does the man. He was complicit. He didn't stop her. He didn't try to intervene or do anything like that. So we see man committing the sin of omission. The sin of commission is committing a sin. The sin of omission is omitting yourself from stepping into something that we should. Then in verse 8, we see this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, look at this, where are you? God is omniscient. He knows everything. This wasn't like a, uh, my wife and I played, and I've shared this before. We, last week, we literally played hide and seek with our kids. We went around back and our, 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 our boy was, he had a blanket over him, and he was like moving under the blanket, and so we're like, we're going to let that one be, you know? And so we'll let him live in in that moment, right? But it's not like we're like, where are you? Like we, and, and this isn't God saying like, where are you? Like God knows where they are. This, hey, pl please listen. This is a question we need to be willing to ask other men and women. We need to be willing to ask the same question that God the creator asked. Where are you? What's going on in here? What state is your soul in right now? And I think in a lot of ways, we've lost the ability to even ask that question. God cares more than just what's going on externally, your hiding place. What he's asking them is what's going on inside of your soul right now? What is happening? It's a question that I think that we need to ask, man. But you also need to see this. God already knows they sin. What you actually see from the beginning of our Bibles is this God who's pursuing, a God who's stepping towards people in, in, in their brokenness, in their sinfulness, while they're hiding, he's pursuing them in patience, in grace, in gentleness, in tenderness, in care. The God of the Bible moves towards sinners. And he says, where are you? Look at what they say. Verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Let me ask us this. What are we hiding ourselves in? And what are we hiding ourselves from? I, 
I, I, I believe it's a question that men need to wrestle with. What are we hiding ourselves in? What are we hiding ourselves from? Because you can hide in, in, in your intellect. Hunter called that out this week and said that it's worth addressing that I think the men in our Reformed community can hide in a Reformed theology and in their intellect and use good intellectual theological language. Something you can hide in. You can hide in your career. You can hide in a physical appearance, being buff, having great stature. But let me ask you this, because this really happened to a friend. What happens when you get hit by a car and you lose your ability to read? You have to start over. What happens when you get hit by a car and you can't work out anymore? Is it a great place to hide? What are we hiding in? What are we hiding from? And as you look here, you see the next thing that, that they went on to do. Verse 11, he said, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And, and what they actually did, we find out before this, is they covered themselves in fig leaves. Man has not stopped doing the same thing today that man has been doing for a long time. There's an internal problem that God's asking the question to. Where are you? What's going on in here? And our solution is something external. Let's cover ourselves with fig leaves. Let's find something to hide ourselves in. Let's deal with an internal problem with an external response that's called religion and see if we can mask it, hide in it, and see how long that takes for us to come, become completely exhausted. That's how the Bible starts off, and it's the same thing we're doing today. That's the same response our culture has today. It's the same response our culture gives men today is to deal with something externally that's this massive problem on the inside. The problem is this, is that we have been severed from a relationship with a God that we are supposed to be in relationship with. And then we're also severed from a relationship with humanity from how it's supposed to look. That is our problem. Sin is the problem. A severed relationship is the problem. And so our response often to this is to do something external to try to fix something that's massive. Listen, we can't build a bridge to Australia and we can't build a bridge to Pluto. It's not possible. And here's the other thing. You can't build a bridge through your works and efforts to get to an infinite, eternal, holy God. It's too great. You can't do it. Your best works, your best efforts are not gonna happen. Here's what I would say. A lot of the stuff that we see today, there's a porn epidemic amongst men. And oftentimes the person that you're sitting next to you would be like, it's, it, it's probably not my problem. It's an epidemic amongst men today. And I would say even those things are because there's this relational fracture and sever that has happened. One author who's a neuroscientist wrote a book called Wired for Intimacy. And even what he's tr uh, tracing and getting at is a, is, is a lot of that. Men looking at pornographic images and all of this stuff is flowing from men's desire to be in relationship, but we don't know how to do it. And we don't know what to do. And so we turn to something else to fix something on the inside. I think the big thing that men need ultimately is to be reconciled to their creator, but also reconciled to one another. To even be able to look other men in the eyes and say, I love you. How are you? Where are you? I know for me, just having a hug sometimes is the very thing that I need. It, it, it's that relational connection I'm looking for. But we try to constantly fill these voids with other things in our life and it's not working. It is truly not working. And it's led to the same result that we see in the garden. It's man taking our best attempts to try to fix a God-sized problem, and it's never going to work. In fact, here's some, here's some statistics that show you that it's not working. There are 3.5 men are 3.5 times more likely than women to die by suicide. 3.5, not, not, not two times, 3.5 times more likely to die by suicide. Roughly 70% of suicides are white males. 
and only about one-third of the people in, in therapy around the U.S. are men. It's like we know we have a problem, but we don't know what to do. We know we have this massive gap. We know we have something inside of us that's longing for a relationship, but we don't know what to do. And the last thing you do, the last thing you do is cry out, because that's not what men do. Instead, men are supposed to suck it up. They're not supposed to soak up God's grace. They're not supposed to do any of that. They're not supposed to cry out for help and say, I, I, I'm just in a bad spot. And so men have turned inward, or we've turned to other things. And our culture's not helping. We can look at rap songs. You know, rap songs or, or country songs. I'll pick on both, okay? There's a song by Chris Brown called Run It. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. L listen to the lyrics of the song. I drive big boy toys. I make big boy noise. I got big boy things. Then he goes on to say this. This is a massive problem for women. I know what girls want. I know what girls like. They like to stay up and they like to party all night. There's another song called Blurred Lines, which you can't even listen to, because it's the number one repeated words that women who are sexually abused have heard. I know you want it. I know you like it. The song goes on to repeat that over and over again. I know you want it. In a sense, you know you want it. So our culture has taught men to objectify women, which is obviously where a lot of pain has come from. And also, just the stupidity of that. Have you been married for more than, longer than a year? Do you, like... <laughs> Dude, I tell you, my wife does not want to stay up and party all night, ever. I don't want to do that. In fact, just, just as a quick example of just how stupid that is, is my wife orders this game called Discovery, okay? Great game. Big fan. Highly recommend it if you are married. If you are married, okay? It's a marriage game for one married couple. If you invite more, it's going to get weird fast. It is a married game for a married couple. Don't play it if you're dating. Don't play with other couples. Play it with your husband and wife. Got it? I made that super clear, okay? Great game. It's kind of like a competitive monopoly, but it's got a little edge to it. There's a spot on there called a wish space, okay? Just going to say it. Guys, I think you'd like the game, okay? So this is a difference, though. My wife lands on a wish space, and there's a timer, which means you get your wish for like two minutes, right? So you flip the timer over. You know what my wife tells me? I was like, what would you like? You know, I know what Chris Brown says. So uh, she's like, I'd like you to fold the laundry. For two minutes, I sat there and folded laundry while my wife watched me, okay? Yet, yet, yet we have rap songs that are telling us exactly what women want, but it's not what they want. And then we enter into it and think, Boy, this is ridiculous, but we adopt a lot of ridiculous theology. I love country music. In fact, Randy Hauser is coming to the Holt Center. If any of you guys have extra tickets, I'm just saying, you know? I, I would never solicit that from the pulpit. Um, <clears throat> but he, he, he says something similar in his song that, that I'm just going to come home on a sunny day, just, just sweep you up. I'm going to play you a song. I'm going to hang on my hat, kick on my boots. Like, he ain't doing nothing. But he knows what women want. We have a massive problem that our culture is trying to fix by telling us all these things. This is what women want. This is what men should do. This is who men should be and all this stuff. The best a man can get. That's Gillette's slogan. And that's what men are trying to figure out. Our problem is, is that we think it's going to come by adopting a bunch of principles and rules and actions. And man's tried that for years. and It's not worked. So then let's fast forward to 1 Samuel and let's see what's going on there. And let's look at what it looks like to soak up grace. Soak up grace. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. 
God's mode of operation is grace. Our culture does not operate like this at all. What's happening is Saul is, has become a miserable king, and he's looking out for his own interest. And so the Lord tells Samuel, I need you to go to Bethlehem. I need you to meet with Jesse. And from Bethlehem, there's going to be a king there that I want appointed. Tell me that doesn't point to Christ. And then we jump in at verse 6. So he goes, and he comes to Bethlehem. Read with me. When they came, he looked on Eliab. So these are Jesse's sons that he's looking at, okay? He looked at Eliab and thought, surely the, the, the Lord's anointed is before him. Look at what Samuel does. Outward appearance. That's how they got Saul, really tall, GQ, probably could play in the NBA. And it, literally, he was hiding at one point in his life behind stuff, okay? He's like, surely this is the guy, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Look, look. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which means lighter skin, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise. Anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So what's happening here, and what's the point of this story, is this. Man's response in the garden, and from then on out, is to figure out how to fix our problems, how to sow fig leaves, how to cover up a massive internal problem with something external. Then what we see here is we see the way that man chooses another man for a spot as a king by looking at everything external. And this is helpful for us to know today because it's not the way we should choose pastors and churches, the most charismatic, the one who looks like this. What we need to choose pastors based upon is character, character that's been lived out for a long time. And what we're seeing here is that these guys are like Samuel and Jesse are like, surely it's got to be this guy. I mean, he's got, he's, he's, he's got the stature. He looks the part, all of that. And God's like, no, 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 no. That's not him. And we keep going through and seeing something that God says, no, this is not him. No, this is not him. It, 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 it's not him. Until he finally gets to the youngest. You got to understand how big of a deal this is. Back then, there was a law called the law of primogeniture, which stated this, that all the rights went to the oldest son, Okay. You, you, so that's, that's the principal law of the land. But what we see in scripture, God does not operate based upon culture. God operates based upon his own standards, his own means. And we see this starting in Genesis. Because God should choose the oldest, and he chooses Jacob. God should choose the oldest, and again, he chooses Joseph. So God turns those things upside down and says, no, that's my choosing does not work based upon the laws of culture. My choosing does not work based upon an external experience. My choosing works on one decision only, grace. That's how I choose. That's how I work. That's how I operate. 
And so he's doing that here and he's doing that now. He's the, they're like, well, the youngest. And he's like, yeah, bring him. And that's the one God chooses. You know, the, the brothers and everyone else would have been shocked and been like, what in the world is going on? Like, he's the youngest. And God's like, that's him. That's the one. Because again, God operates out of a motive of grace. And what we actually need for biblical manhood is first to understand this, that it's not about something we do, something we perform, something we give, something we conjure up, something we grow and muster strength to do. It's actually something that God does for us. God chose David. God chooses, God loves, God does this based upon his grace. What does our culture say? Tells men phrases like this, work hard, put in your time, suck it up, man up, do work, push through it, grin and bear it, take it like a man, buck up, tough it out, grit your teeth, lace up your bootstraps, never give up, pain is weakness leaving the body, hang tough and gut it out. I'm not saying that there's not a time and space to say some of those things sometimes, but the first mode of operation that men need to soak up is to know that God doesn't work in shoes like our culture does. He works off of grace. And grace is the thing and the only thing that has the power to motivate, change, and transform a heart. If we want our men and our culture to change, it's going to come through grace. Not through rules and not through principles. It's going to come through grace. Grace has the power to motivate a heart and life. You know what's not going to work? I think this is helpful for the women to hear. There's been a lot of pain caused throughout world history due to man. Patriarchal societies, all of that. But now, demonizing or making villains out of men is not going to produce the response that we think it is. Emasculating men, adopting an egalitarian or some philosophy that makes men subservient to women, adopting all those things and doing all those things, a certain language that's not going to produce biblical manhood in our society. Those are external things. What men will do instead is they will learn the language they will learn the rules. They might even learn how to hide from women, be afraid of women, pull back from women. But they won't learn how to love, value, cherish, and respect women. And that's what we want. That's, that's what I want. And I think that's what we should want, is we want men to be protectors. We want men to be advocates. We want men to be loving and gracious, to be able to look women in the eyes. And it's not going to happen by principles and rules. And plus, why should our societal rules be any better than God's law? What we need is for men to understand something David did, how loved and treasured and adored by the God of the universe that he was. Grace. Our society doesn't work like this. I've used this examples before, but our society, I need you to think about fast food and about a nice restaurant, okay? Because the way our society works looks more like McDonald's. You pay for your food, you keep driving to the next booth, and then they give it to you. You pay for something, you get something, like a vending machine. I put money in, now I'm expecting to get something in return. And how mad do we get when stuff hangs up in a vending machine? We're like, I paid for that, right? And oftentimes we think, because I've done something like this for you, God, this is what you owe me in return. That's not how grace operates. That's how the world operates. God's grace looks more like a nice restaurant. You go in, they take care of you. They bring you appetizers, they bring you food. They bring you all the service and all these things. And at the end of it, as a response to all that you've been given, then you pay. It'd be like driving through McDonald's backwards. People would be like, what are you doing? That's not how it works. But that's how the gospel works. It is backwards to our culture and society. You get something first, freely from grace. 
Not because you paid for it, and then we live our lives as a response that way. The very first thing that our men need is our men need to soak up grace, to know that it's not about external appearance, to know that it's not about intellect, to know that it's not about a certain stature, to know that it's not about those things. You got to hear this. Every man in this room is different. Every man in this world is different. Some are emotionally more sensitive. Some like poetry. Some like art. I did not watch the Super Bowl. I don't like watching sports. Instead, I, re I read a book while the Super Bowl was on. I don't like watching sports. I think it's boring. Amen. Yeah. You know, as a trick, I'm going to tell you guys this. As a trick, there's a group of guys who got together this week and asked them, define biblical manhood. You know, the majority responses came back is, how would you define it? Was, and, and this is a trick, but it's something that we do. It's not for something that is given to us. It, it, it's not for something that we are. And that's because our world has told us in order to do something, to become something, this is what we need to do. What first we need to understand is God's grace and we need to soak up that grace because that's what Gillette is doing. I'm gonna read it to you. This comes from their company. They did this whole commercial to respond to a lot of the um, just toxic masculinity that's happening in our culture. And they said this, the company conducted focus groups with men and women across the country in their homes and in online surveys. What Bala says, the team heard over and over again was men saying this. I know I'm not a bad guy. I'm not that person. I know that. But what I don't know is how I can be the best version of myself. So they went on to give a response. The only way by doing that is by challenging ourselves to do more. Then we can get closer to our best. Our culture's response is do more. It's not grace. And the very first thing that men need to know and understand is that they are severed from a relationship with the Holy God, and you cannot get back there by any other means besides God's divine, special, amazing, beautiful grace. And we need to soak in that. I, I'm, I'm telling you, from, from, from someone who did not grow up in that kind of childhood, who, who did not grow up with something like that, that what we need are fathers displaying grace. What we need is fathers showing and modeling God's grace. What we need are people pointing to God's grace, not to actions of do more. We often talk about, what about transformation? How will transformation come? Here's what I'm saying. I believe transformation comes by the more that we soak in and soak up God's grace and are blown away by it. And if you don't believe me, let's listen to someone who has their PhD, Dane Ortland. He says this, the only alternative to the real Jesus is to get back on the treadmill, the treadmill of doing your best to follow and honor Jesus but believing his mercy and grace to be a stockpile gradually depleted by your failures and hoping to make it to death before the mountain of mercy runs out. Here's the teaching of the Bible, he says. If you are in Christ, your sins cause that stockpile to grow all the more. Where sin abounds, his grace superabounds. It is your pockets of deepest shame and regret that his heart dwells and won't leave. He says this, let him in all his endless fullness, love you into growth. Maybe growth comes from hearts that are soaking in the grace of God, the beauty of Christ and all that he's done. And manhood is produced out of that. Not a set of rules and principles we can adopt, lace up our bootstraps and try to accomplish. Because we'd have to ask, how are we doing with that? Why does Paul start in his letters with grace to you? Think about that. It's expensive to write. He starts and ends his letters with that because he knows this, that the Bible, when you open it up, is God 
essentially saying this, it's his grace to you. When we open up our Bibles, that's what it is. It's God's message of grace to us, beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. It's God's grace to undeserving man. It is ultimately a book showing the one biblical true man. It's all elevating up to him, Jesus Christ, and saying, you can't do it. You need grace. And showing this is God's mode of operation. And we need to soak up grace. Next, what we need is to soak up what Christ gives. And it's this. We need to be born again. We need to have a new identity. We need to be restored. Okay? Born again, new identity, restored. And we need to soak up what, uh, what, what Christ gives, what Jesus gives. Not what we can accomplish, but what he gives, what he gives freely. And I'm going to move through this quickly, okay? We're going to be in John's gospel. If you want to move there, you can move there. But remember, in the garden, I believe it was Christ there, said, where are you? In John's gospel, chapter 1, John, the apostle, and also the writer of John's gospel, Christ says this to him. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? The God who was in the beginning with a tree said, where are you? When Jesus shows up, the first words in John's gospel out of Jesus' mouth are, what are you seeking? Jesus knew the answer to that. He knew what they were seeking. He knew what, Bible, uh, he, he knew what man was seeking. And he goes on in chapter 3 to say it because he's talking to Nicodemus, and he answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How are you born again? Nicodemus is like, how is someone to go back into the womb and then come out of the womb? And Jesus is like, exactly. <laughs> it's grace. No one comes out of the womb and goes, yeah, I did it. Like, you're born by grace. Like, it's not your own accomplishments. And he's saying the only way to have a new heart, to have new birth, to be born again, is through what Christ alone can do for you. So he's like, this is what you need. What you're seeking is new birth, a new heart. Here's the thing. If we want man to live a life that models what biblical manhood looks like, that looks like grace and tenderness and compassion, we first have to have a heart that's reflective with that. If someone would have came to me earlier in life and just gave me a set of principles, I started following Jesus when I was 23, I would have not had any motivation to do that. I did not treat women well. I'm telling you, my heart was so cold, so numb, and so calloused that a set of rules and principles wouldn't have done anything until Christ gave me a new heart. That's what I needed. And that's what we need ultimately first, is to be born again, to have a new heart. But then as we keep reading through John's gospel, I love this. Jesus is the only man who's went into temptation and come out successful. He was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, flawless. Then in John 13, 23, what we see is this, is this verbiage that says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Where is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved? He's resting in his chest as they're reclining around the table. The disciple whom Jesus loved is leaned up against his creator's own heartbeat. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved because he knew that was the identity that Christ had given him. The greatest thing that men need is a new birth, women too, a new heart, a new identity, one that is unshakable. This morning, I was almost in laughter to think that the king of the universe calls me the disciple whom he loves. Like he loves me insurmountable without any sort of measure. If you are in Christ, his love for you has no limits. And I think the king of the universe calls me a prince and loves me like that. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved just like John was. How? By grace, by what Christ has accomplished. And how ultimately was this accomplished? If we fast forward in John's gospel to 19, we see this. John 19, verse 17, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. 
to the place called the Skoll, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. You see, in the beginning, man was separated from God by a tree. And then you see Jesus Christ carrying a tree on his shoulders up to a hill to where he will be nailed on a tree. It's not ultimately nails that hold him there. It's his love for humanity. What is he doing there? He didn't just give a model for how men should live, though he did do that. What he was doing is dying as a sacrifice for the way we have failed to live according to the way men should live. He was dying for the way that men have objectified women. He was dying for the ways we've adopted toxic masculinity, for the ways that we have not lived according to his commandments. He was there on the cross paying through his own life and bearing the wrath of God that we should be bearing as men. So yes, he gives a perfect model, but then he says, also, I'm doing something that you can't do. This, this infinite gap, this chasm that you can't bridge, I'm paying the way and I'm creating the way through my life, through my death, and then through my resurrection to bridge that. What you need is to be restored to God and then to humanity. That comes only through Jesus Christ. That's what he was doing. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. Yes, he did amazing things in his ministry. He was tough. He worked with his hands. He was a carpenter, a, 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 a mason. And he used those same hands to touch people that were hurting and broken. He was gentle, he was tender, and he was tough. He upholds both peace and power perfectly. He bridged and did for man what man cannot do, reconciled and restored our relationship to God through everything that he did in his life. You know, if you are in Christ, you have an unshakable identity, that the same identity that was given to the apostle John, this is my disciple with whom I love, is the same identity that's given to you. This is my disciple whom I love. How much does Christ love you? Just as much as he loves the Father. Just as much as the Father loves him. So God loves you. And he gives all this. We need to soak up what Jesus gives. Now, let's turn to see what Paul says in 2 Timothy. How do we live in response to this? We need to soak up the life that Christ has called us to. In 2 Timothy 2, it says this. Verse 3, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. So because of soaking up the grace of God, because of soaking up what Christ freely gives, now how do we soak up the life Christ has called us to? We, we, we can't go backwards on the order. We don't do these things and hope to get these things. We have these things by grace, and now here's how we live so important, is we live like a soldier. Soldiers are hardworking. We, we are to live like a soldier. Do you know how soldiers are called to live? Faithful. Men, we are called to live faithful, faithful at loving our wives, faithful at loving our families, faithful at loving our children, faithful at loving our local churches. We are called to be faithful men. One of the biggest hangups right now in our society is that men of God are not living faithful lives. We're called to be faithful, and we're called to get on the battlefield. Let me be gracious, but let me be truthful. There's people in this room, and there's people that are listening. There's people around GCC family who have been Christians for years who have no engagement in discipleship at all, who are not loving, serving, and treating their families well, who spend more time, and, 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 and I'm not going, I'm not going to attack people that just play video games, but your video game Time cannot surpass your time that you're engaging on the mission of God and discipling people or your Netflix or anything else. We're called to be faithful. Getting caught up in civilian pursuits can be a number of things. 
It is my honest heart to hope as a church planning network, that's what we're a part of, that we'd be raising up faithful soldiers that are not sitting on the sidelines, but are actually in the battlefield. I would love for men to come up and say, hey, I'm all in. I want to live for Jesus. I don't want to just sit in the, in the stands anymore. I don't want to sit in the backseat. I want to live my life for Christ. I want God to raise up church planners inside of our church family. And I want men to say, I want to be faithful soldiers. Like Paul tells us we're in war. He uses warlike language. And I want that. I want that for our men because of the gospel, because of the riches of it. But he also says to, to, to compete like an athlete. I'm a highly competitive person, but our ultimate competition should be this, that we should be showing honor to other men and women inside of God's family. That's how Christians should live. Competitively outdoing one another and showing honor to one another, encouraging one another, but also going up to other men and saying, where are you at? Telling, looking them in the eye, telling them that you love them, that you appreciate them, wrapping your arms around them. One time Ronnie did that to me. It was all I needed. I just started weeping. And then the farmer. You know what farmers do? A lot of hard invisible work. They model a life of being a servant. And I think what we need a lot here, some of you won't like this. Show up to church on time. Display servant leadership. Do it in your homes. Do it in your families. Do it for the church family. I'm not coming down on men. I purposely have tried to say, soak up grace, soak up what Christ has done. But I'm also saying, men, we have a response. God calls us to a standard of holy living. God calls us to a response, to a model, to live a life. Let's do it. Let's encourage one another to do it. Let's be on the battlefield together, fighting for one another. That's what I love about Wally and Nita. The older generation who have come to GCC and said, I want to invest in people's lives, like, I didn't just come here to sit on the sidelines. I came here to pour into people's lives. Let's do that. Let's do it together. The very end of our Bible. I'm not going to read it all. When Jesus is on the cross, he declares it's finished. Every work was done that needed to be done. In Revelation 19, you see all these men and women that have the same outfits on. They are adorned in these robes. And it says in Revelation 19, 8, it was granted, it was given her to wear these, fine linen, bright and pure. When Christ returns one day, we're all going to wear the same outfits. There's not going to be this match on, on, on who's got what and who's got this and who's got that. But he also, at the very end, there's the tree of life again. And Christ says these words, look at what I've done. He's going to restore all things to himself. He's going to make things whole. He's going to make things new. He's in the process of doing that now. And, and here's, here's the good thing. In Christ, you get to live out who God's created you to be. I think Dave is a great model of what it looks like to be a biblical man. Ultimately, Christ is. But you talk about a dude who's fighting lions and bears. And then the next scene, he's writing poetry on a hillside, playing a lyre. You know, I don't even know what that is, actually. So <laughs> it's not this model for a man. It's not this model for a man. What the model is for a biblical man is to soak up God's grace and know what God has given us by his grace what Christ has ultimately restored us to a relationship with God and relationship with one another, and now what he's called us to do with it and how he's called us to live. The words I wanted to hear over and over and over and over in my life by my dad that I never really got to hear where that's my boy. Like, I think every son wants to hear that. That's my boy. Pride. Oftentimes I look over at my dad during games and stuff like that, and I saw him either burying his face in his hands, shaking his head, or he would. my dad was boisterous. He would scream, pull him out of the game. He's ruining it for the whole team. That's fun. 
But I think we all want to hear that. Men and women alike. I'm going to end with this poem. It's called That's My Boy. I'll say this. The greatest compliments that I've received lately have come from Brad Leibel and from some other friends of ours. And I think this is part of what it looks like. Is Brad said, Rick, I appreciate you take the gospel seriously, but not life. The others said, we appreciate that you love Jesus, but also love to have fun and enjoy life. And I did a competition yesterday, and I can tell you, I had the time of my life. And the thing that changes for me and that's changed for me throughout my life is I literally think of this phrase of God singing over me like, that's my boy. Like, it doesn't matter. He's like, that's my boy. And it changes the way that you live your life. Let, let me close by reading this poem. The words every boy longs to hear from his dad. That's my boy. Words cut to the heart and can mend his soul, but words can also crush a heart and cripple a boy. To hear the words, that's my boy, rob the power to destroy. To hear the words, that's my boy, can make a heart soar with joy. To hear those words at your best moments are good, but to hear these words at your worst moment is a picture of true fatherhood. Of course, every boy likes to hear, that's my boy, when he rounds third base, but every boy longs to hear, that's my boy, when he falls flat on his face. Every, every earthly father fails to say the words a boy longs to hear every day, but our true heavenly father never fails to declare those words, even when we fail to read our Bibles or pray. Those are God's words to his boys every moment of every day, even when we are selfish and we want our own way. Our father sings those words and will never turn his face away. Of course, he sings these words in his own way, but by the grace they come to us because that is God's only way. That's my boy are the words declared when Christ saves you. That's my boy are never connected to what you do or don't do. Otherwise, it wouldn't be about God's grace. It would be about you. Son, child, rest and rejoice today because God will never look at you and say, ooh, but loves every single part of you through and through. Let's pray. Father, we recognize we have a massive problem in our culture. And I think everyone wants a 10-step process on how to fix it. Help us to believe that what you've displayed in your word through your grace and through what Christ has done and the spirit you've empowered us with can actually produce what it is to live out biblical manhood. In Jesus' name, amen.